I know for most of you that's an unfamiliar hymn. And I know most of you don't like to sing unfamiliar hymns. But we don't learn them if we don't sing them. So one day you'll say, can we sing that hymn again? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, If you would please uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. We're finishing out the first portion of this this morning. As we begin our study in it this last Lord's Day. And we'll continue and complete that this morning. I've got to tell you, last night I had a dream that I was preaching. I don't know what it was. But it was like 1230. It wasn't through preaching. We're going to have communion. Sort of I thought to myself, what do I do? So if we're not going to go to 1230. Just don't worry about that. It was not some prophetic dream, I don't think. Okay. Oh, here they are. Okay. Psalm 73. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Let's hear the word of the Lord. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet slipped. I almost stumbled and my, my steps and nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And they are not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongues strut throughout the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them. They find no fault to them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me wearisome, a wearisome task until I would enter the sanctuary of God and I discerned. There end the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. I ask you please to uh, pray quietly for me as I preach the text. Pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word this morning, that it would be beneficial and grace to be experienced on both sides of the pulpit. Let's pray. <coughs> Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we know that the primary means of grace is the reading and proclamation of your word. And so, O Lord, I do pray for your grace this morning, that you would be with me as I preach, take away any timidity that I might have. I pray that I'm going to preach by the power of your spirit and pray for the congregation. If there are any here that aren't converted, we ask you to grant salvation to them. Any here, O God, who are struggling with things, again, that you would grant hope and repentance to them. And may it be, our Lord, that your people would be instructed from the scriptures this morning and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Amen. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a magician, not a musician, a magician in the church. He wrote many of the psalms. They sang those psalms in worship, and he wrote this psalm, Psalm 73. And in this psalm, he expresses a great perplexity. And the perplexity is, how is it that the wicked... Enjoy prosperity and ease while he who is faithful to God suffers. 
and perhaps throughout the years of our lives, you'll wonder the same thing about yourself, that you sought to be faithful and you sought to honor God, and yet you suffered while those around you had no thought of God, did quite well. I was sitting in Hattiesburg one time, and my best friend growing up was a man named Larry Albert. We were always together. We grew up, started first grade together and uh, went through high school together. And I happened to be at a place in Hattiesburg, and I happened to have his son sitting next to me that I hadn't seen for a long time, didn't recognize him at first. And he said this, I tried God. It didn't work. How many people could have said that throughout the history of the church, that they were thinking that if I become a Christian, if I become a believer, then things are going to fall into place for me. You know, I'm going to have an easy life of it, and God will do the things that I ask him to do. Now, that is a terrible misconception, but so many of us, I think, at different times in our lives have that problem. And we talked about those who are very, very successful in the world, and yet those who have no interest in the things of the gospel. George Soros, very, very wealthy man. I have no idea how much money he has, but he's very, very wealthy. And yet most of the causes he supports go against the teachings of Scripture. He is by no means a believer, and yet he has been blessed tremendously. And who is behind that blessing in his life? Well, it is God. Joel Osteen, the biggest church in North America, the largest church in North America. Easy to listen to, fun to listen to, but there's no gospel there. It's empty of the gospel. There is never a call to repentance because of our sin. There's never a call to turn to Christ in grief over our sin in order that we might be saved and have a life that is rich and God's grace expressed through us in Christ Jesus. And then we have the Disney Corporation doing the things that they do. The children who are in K through third grade have no business hearing about things they weren't talking about. They need to hear and be taught. It's insanity. And who knows how much money they have. And then finally, we can talk about Putin and what he's doing in Ukraine, where there are many, many believers in Ukraine. And yet, they're suffering tremendously. I'm not saying everybody there is a Christian. But a lot of Christians are there. And even the people that aren't don't deserve to be blown up. Men and women and children being killed like that. And we see that, we may ask ourselves, where is God in all of this? That's where Asaph is as he writes this psalm. Where is God in all of these things that seem to be inconsistent with the fact that God rules and he is altogether righteous and altogether holy and altogether just? Where is the justice of God? They would ask, and we might ask as well. So this morning I would see this, that we can continue on in our faithfulness to the Lord, even though at times it seems as if, His justice is hidden. His kindness is gone. And it seems that he blesses the wrong people. We can rest assured of this, that the day will come when God's justice will be known to all people. And those who hate him, those who are opposed to him, will pay for it. They will give an account. What does it say in the scriptures? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will avenge. It's up to him, not up to us. It's up to the Lord to do that. So three things we looked at last, last Lord's Day, that God providentially, providentially rules over all things in creation. And then he blesses the life of the wicked according to his providence. 
and he would judge the world according to his providence as well. The first one we looked at pretty much in detail this last Lord's Day. And the problem is that as he understands that God rules over all things, God's sovereign over all things, every aspect of the creation, every molecule in the cosmos, God is in control of that, ruling all things by the word of his power, including, including the blessings that are upon those who hate him. And the difficulty, again, that Asaph is having is he knows that they come to these people by the work of God. And he's suffering. You know, you have to have had trials in your life to understand what Asaph is dealing with here. I imagine every Christian has had trials in their life of some kind or another, some severe. Being told you have cancer, not a pleasant thing. Losing a child, and not a pleasant thing. And yet, as we go through these struggles, if we get our eye off the, the heart of the gospel, you see, and then those who do not have the struggles that we have, those who seem to be very successful and have a life of ease, there's a problem there if we're not careful in our thinking. That's what was going on in the life of Asaph, because God blesses the wicked, and they seem to go unscathed here in the text. And as Asaph deals with this thing, you see, uh, he recognizes uh, that God blesses them. Uh, we see the problem here. He, he acknowledges their arrogance in Psalm 73. Uh, again, as he says, uh, they strut through the earth. Uh, they speak malice. Uh, they have uh, their necklaces that of pride. These are the people that he's describing here as he lives his life as a faithful uh, writer of hymns in the church, as a faithful follower of God of the Old Testament, the church of the Old Testament. And then he sees these people who have no interest in the things of God whatsoever doing quite well. And pride, you see, is at the heart of their being. They're arrogant. They're prideful. And they express that in their lives. One commentator says this, They put on the ornaments and trappings of pride, their clothing and their adorning, the way they treat others, all indicative of a proud heart. People that are prideful, people that think they're better than others, can be very, very cruel in the way that they treat others. This is their speech. Now, they go through all the earth. They have no regard for the law. They announce their arrogance before the world. Their heart is hardened against the Lord. You want to see somebody's pride and arrogance, confront them with the gospel. Someone you know that's not a believer, someone that seems to come across as prideful or a feigned humility, confront them with the gospel. And see what happens. Unless God is working in their life grace, then they will respond in a very arrogant and a very uh, condemnatory way to the presentation of the gospel in their lives. And their speech betrays their pride. He says here that, uh, how does God know? As I do these things that I know contrary to his law, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High God? And the answer is, of course, a rhetorical question. And the answer is, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't see anything. He is not one who has any rule over my life whatsoever. He's blind, if he even exists. He has no authority over me whatsoever. And it says here, they, they parade their, their, their through the earth. And we see here that it's certainly connected with a great deal of abundance, or the poison of that abundance that can have in the life of a believer, I mean of an individual. 
Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than for a camel. I mean, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You also remember the scriptures tell us that those who wish to become rich afflict themselves with many pangs. Now, let me qualify it. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. But throughout the Bible, again and again and again, the warning is there for those who are wealthy or those who desire to be so. Because what happens is they have a sense of their own self-accomplishment. They have a sense of putting their trust in the wealth that they have, the things that they have that they possess, rather than in God. And like the uh, rich young ruler, there's a danger of having too much of an affection or love for the things that you have, an individual has that is very, very wealthy. So there's that, that possible poison with wealth. And so that if you are one today who has a great abundance, you do so with gratitude. You do so with thanksgiving. You do so recognizing you're responsible for how you use that wealth as far as helping others. What am I going to be like the foolish uh, man who had a, an abundance in his barns and surplus and so forth? He wouldn't help anybody. What he said was in that parable, I'm going to build bigger barns to hold all of my surplus. And here's a man at his doorstep named Lazarus and doesn't do it, lift a finger to help him. He is self-centered. He's self-consumed. And he's putting his trust in the wealth that he has to give him comfort throughout the rest of his days. Well, the fact that uh, these individuals are arrogant and prideful as Asaph watches them should have been enough to cause him not to desire to be like them. If we understand it, remember what the Bible teaches about arrogance. Uh, Arrogance will make a rational person irrational. Pride of sin will make one who is wise unwise. And so it is that God says in the scriptures that he is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. As the individual who is a person characterized by humility is one who recognizes this. I need him every hour. I need him every moment of my day because it is by his grace and by his presence that I continue to live. It is by his grace and by his presence that I am freed from the condemnation of lawlessness. It is by his grace and by his presence that I continue on faithfully in my walk before him. And by his grace and by his presence that when I close my eyes in death, I can do so with confidence. I can do so with hope. Some of you know who R.C. Sproul was. He was very much of a scholar in the Reformed Church. Uh, a man who uh, again and again was writing and giving lectures and so forth. But he said this. He knew he was dying. And he sent a letter out that he wrote, obviously, before he died. And he sent that to people that, I guess, supported him. And I read the letter and it said this. If I am afraid, pray for me. This man who had served Christ so faithfully for so many years as death was approaching, he said, if I am afraid, pray for me. Because death is something that is completely contrary to anything that we have known in our experience. Completely contrary to is shutting off of all things to in this world. And yet the believer has the assurance that to leave this life is to pass into glory where Christ is. As Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in paradise well, as Asaph thought of these things, he struggled with it. How is this sovereign God who's, who these people are characterized by arrogance? And he envied them, even though they are contrary to what God would have them to be by that arrogance. It says that he almost fell. 
Uh, he's reading the text. He makes this statement at the beginning of, 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 of a chapter, uh, Psalm 73. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. What's he saying here? He's basically saying, because I cannot make sense of God's sovereignty and the fact that I have been faithful to God and I've suffered and these people who have not been faithful to God are being blessed, I almost rejected what I knew to be true. And it might be while he was in the midst of that and you said to him, are you a believer? Do you trust God? He may have said, I don't know now. I just don't know if I do believe that God exists or that the God that I have been taught to understand in his ways, if he's really like, these, like that at all. Because I never dreamed that I would ever see this kind of thing taking place. And yet here it is. So he was flummoxed by it. Yes, he says, God is good to Israel. That's a fact. Yes, God is good to his people. That's a fact. So he states the obvious. He states what he knows to be true at the beginning. But then he describes in the remaining of that psalm his difficulty. I almost slipped. I almost rejected what I knew to be true. I almost gave it up because I was dealing with things that were a quandary in my mind. And I couldn't bring it to reconciliation. With what I had believed about God, what I had been taught about God, what I had taught others about God. And so the question, how can God be good when he blesses the wicked and he fails to bless the righteous in a similar fashion? That's his problem. You know, there may be those in the church today who are faithful in their church attendance, faithful in prayer, faithful in being obedient to the Lord. And yet some unseen thing occurs. They lose a job. They lose a spouse. They lose a child. They lose their health. And all of a sudden, they have to reconfigure God. And they ask themselves, well, have I been wrong all this time? Have I been misunderstood the precepts of Scripture all this time? Have I, in fact, been wasting my time by being obedient and submissive to the Lord? And if you notice here in the text, he says this toward the end, um, right before verse 17. Um, when I thought to understand this, it was beyond me. It was wearisome. My feet almost slipped. I was envious of the arrogant. My feet almost slipped because my understanding of who God was and what he's like did not meet the circumstances I was dealing with day in and day out. And it's wasteful, it's worthless, it's useless to serve God. He says that here in the text. It served me no good purpose uh, to strive against sin. It served me no good purpose uh, to defend God. It served me no good purpose to be faithful in what God had called me to do. It served no good purpose at all. Because he did not bless me. You see, the foolishness of that thinking. That we have in our own, if we're honest with ourselves, in our own times, that if we're going to worship, if we are um, uh, uh, being faithful to obedience, then God's supposed to recognize that and he's supposed to bless you. If you saw the movie, What, what About Bob? You ever see that movie? Anybody see that movie, What About Bob? And Richard Dreyfus plays Dr. Leo Mor- um, Marvin. Um, Bill Murray plays um, Bob Wiley. And... Bill Murray's character is such, he's obsessed with his therapist. And so Dr. Marvin goes on vacation. Well, Bill Murray finds him, 
follows him on vacation. And he's talking to him and he says, give me, give me, give me. I need, I need, I need. And then, you know, it's, it's a pretty funny movie. Well, that's how this psalmist is. Give me, give me, give me. I need, I need, I need. How wonderful it would be if we pleaded before God for our sanctification like that. For to help me to love you and to trust you more. And yet what was happening here with the psalmist, it had to do with material things. I'm perplexed. I'm confused. I'm confounded. And it's not worth following you and worshiping you at all. He had come to that point. So his entire existence was inwardly focused. He was consumed with himself and not with God. Consumed with his hurts, not with God's goodness and sovereignty. So it was as he was in that midst of that quandary that it says here that his feet slipped and he almost fell away. The last thing is, by his providence, God will judge the world. So you have this this uh, statement here in uh, verses um, uh 16 and 17, when I thought to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task. In other words, he never resolved this issue. He didn't come to understand how it could be that God could be good and God could love his people. There would be those who have faith in Christ and God would support his people. And yet they suffer severely. I don't know how many of you know who the one that wrote um, It Is Well With My Soul, who he was. Uh, he was a businessman in Chicago. And uh, if, you have, if you're not familiar with that hymn, it's a beautiful hymn. I'm talking basically about trusting God in the midst of severe trials. Uh, it Is Well With My Soul. And he, uh, his business burned. His wife and daughters were going to, to, to England. And somewhere along the way, the ship uh, sank. He lost all of his children. His wife survived, and he's going to England to be with his wife. And he said to the captain of the ship, tell me when we reach the spot where the ship went down. And he tells him. And as he's standing there, he pins this absolutely beautiful hymn that's full of expressions of faith and trust in God. It is well with my soul. That's the confessions of an individual who's trusting God is good. Though the circumstances of our lives may deny it, God is good and ever good to his people. So it is in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. How do we know then that God is good and God is just and God is going to demonstrate Justice finally at the end of the ages where those things that the wicked seem to get away with, in fact, God's noticing. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and I determined they're in. The psalmist has come here in this verse to his theological senses. That God is good and God is just. It will be determined one day, be demonstrated one day to the entirety of, of the world. He had an experience, and through that experience, which was not good, he had determined the character and the being of God. Not through scripture, not through doctrine, but through experience. And if your view of God is formulated 
by experience, you will never have an accurate understanding of who God is and what he's like. It is only through scripture that we come to really know what God is and what God is like. And ultimately, we see the goodness and justice of God in the cross of Calvary. There we see justice displayed in a very real sense as God took upon or put upon his son the condemnation for sin and guilt of his people. He shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, we read in Scripture. And so it is when we put on our, our biological glasses, if you will, our theological glasses, that we perceive God aright. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where people suffer. We live in a world, if you watch world history and read world history, that at times people suffered in the church just because there were Christians. I've said it before, the Huguenots, the Covenanters. Throughout the history of the world, we've seen again and again that believers suffer because they're committed to Christ. What would you do? What would I do if that time came again? Because right now the church is despised by many in our own country. And Christians are despised by many in our own country. And it is because of the fact that we teach and preach a righteousness that God expects us to live up to. And though we don't do it as we should, there is that great gift of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. So by the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have peace with God. Recognize there'll be things that happen that we can't understand in this life. We simply can't. I've related to you some things that happened in my past, and losing a brother. Stillborn. After nine months, my mother carried him. Stillborn. And the day before he was born, the doctor listened to heartbeat, said it was a strong. My aunt told me this recently. It was a strong heartbeat. Can you imagine that, that they, my mother was put to sleep because she had a C-section. And uh, when she woke up, and my father had to tell her that our son died. Unless you have a grip on the eternality of God and the fact that there is a place in glory where those who die go to be with Christ in glory, unless you have a grasp on the righteousness of God, the justice of God displayed in the cross of Calvary, you simply either have to steal yourself to that type of thing and ignore and turn yourself against the Lord. I accept his providence. And you say this, I will yet see that child. I'll see him. As God's promise to his people to be a God to us and to our children after us. And we know the kindness of God that that child is in glory. That's a comfort. That's a great comfort. A comfort that only the Christians have. So as you sit this morning, I would ask you, do you have faith in Christ? Are you trusting Jesus, really trusting Christ for your salvation? And the pangs of this earth, as Paul says in the book of Romans, the miseries of this life pale to an insignificance when we consider the glory to be revealed in us at the end of the ages. We have here before us the Lord's table where we remember the sacrifice of Jesus uh, for our sakes. His life and death and resurrection, we are reminded of that. If we come to the table this morning, the certainty of redemption accomplished and applied by his grace. Here we have what Christ gave to us. When we're in doubts, he said, remember and trust. Let's pray.